Hi, I'm Lauren Gilger, co-host of the show, one of KJZZ's original productions. It's a program with news and features from across Phoenix and the state. You can find much more at theshow.kjzz.org. Here's today's episode. Good morning. Welcome to the show here on KJZZ 91.5 in Phoenix. I'm Mark Brody. And I'm Lauren Gilger. Coming up, could the Diamondbacks leverage last year's success for improvements to Chase Field or a new stadium? And Galentine's Day was created 14 years ago on the TV show Parks and Rec. Why it's still around today? But first, the U.S. House of Representatives recently passed a bipartisan bill that includes a big expansion of the child tax credit. Advocates say it could lift millions of children out of poverty if it passes the Senate and hundreds of thousands here in Arizona, according to our next guest. January Contreras recently took over the helm of the Children's Action Alliance, which advocates for issues benefiting benefiting children and families at the state capitol. I sat down with her recently to talk about the child tax credit as well as some of their other major priorities this session. It's a lot of work around health care. So this session we have a bill that is uh, moving through the legislature with bipartisan support to expand uh, access to comprehensive dental care for uh, families who are part of our Medicaid system. Mm-hmm. On child welfare, that's a big focus of ours. And we're really working to try to make sure we're moving resources to prevent the necessary separation of kids and families so that we're putting more resources to keep families safely together. Because we know that the vast majority of families who are there, are, it's not abuse. Uh, and sometimes the support's coming in at the right time in a crisis can make the difference. Mm-hmm. We are particularly working on bills that are about grandparents. I mean, how many of us know grandparents who are lending a hand and stepping in when the parents can't uh, to raise grandkids, aunts, uncles, you know, family members, these kinship caregivers? And Arizona has made some strides uh, in this space, but we want to keep moving the ball so that kinship caregivers are being supported the same way that other foster care parents are, and whether they're in a formal situation or not. So mm-hmm. we have some bills that, are, again, are, are moving just this week. They're getting their hearings. We're very excited about that, and we hope that the legislature will choose to come through for those kinship caregivers. Mm-hmm. So I want to talk about one bill on your agenda this session. This is SB 1037. It's aimed at something that seems kind of innocuous, which you just mentioned there, which is like access to dental care. Arizona's Medicaid system does not at this point cover primary and preventative care for adults right now. That's right. And this is one where we're going to restore part of services that mm-hmm. once existed before the Great Recession for a moment there. Children's Action Alliance, you wouldn't necessarily think we'd be focused on this dental or oral health aspect, but one of our areas that we focus on is maternal health, Hmm. uh, infant mortality, which you don't even ever want to hear those two words come together. But Arizona, across the country, it's true, but Arizona, too, we're seeing an increase in problems with maternal health. And you don't think about, like, when you're trying to solve this very big issue. Yeah. Um, how do you do that? But it's these small policy changes that can really make a difference. What you're putting within reach to a pregnant mom, uh, to someone who needs, who has a dental issue, who can't afford it. I know we know what those bills are like mm-hmm. uh, when it comes to dental services. So this actually mostly uses some of our existing money. We have a we have a good uh, match with the federal government. When it comes to comprehensive dental services, so it actually allows us to use a lot of the funds we're already spending 
in ways that, that are all about prevention. And when it comes to prevention, that you know, it's just a very powerful tool that we need to use as often as we can. Yeah. So this is expanding coverage to adults for this kind of oral health care. Draw the connection for us there, because that sounds so odd to folks, but there really is a big and proven connection between maternal health and oral health. It's it's true. When you try to break down what is happening during pregnancy, that where we can bring solutions to bear oral health issues, dental health issues um, are a problem and they lead to Problems for moms and bad outcomes and also problems for babies, uh, mm-hmm. low birth weights, for example. So the data is very clear, and I know people don't want to sit there and read the whole reports, um, but just take it from us that, that this is shown. If we can get during pregnancy, we can get access to dental health and oral health services. It's going to make a difference. And this is a problem, maternal mortality, that is, as you said, going up particularly here in Arizona and particularly among black and indigenous mothers. It's true. Uh, we know the areas, uh, populations, uh, you know, communities that are being particularly hurt. Uh, and when you look at a Medicaid population and families that are struggling, you know, this is the right way to spend the money that, that we're already investing there. In Arizona, we saw uh, between 99 and 09, one study told us that our maternal health outcomes quadrupled. We saw the, the bad outcomes quadruple. So mm-hmm. It's a very serious issue we need to tackle with a sense of urgency, and this is one way to do it. Hmm. I want to also talk about a potential impact from this uh, expansion of the child tax credit that lawmakers in Washington, D.C. are talking about right now. It's on the table. Tell us, first of all, we've heard a lot probably about the potential impact on, on lifting children out of poverty on a national level. What would this look like in Arizona? Well, in Arizona, if this bipartisan agreement and, you know, hey, that's exciting to see at a time when we see a lot of polarization, members came together to say this is something we're going to work on. And the package Mm -hmm. has the expanded child tax credit and other pieces to it uh, for small businesses and others. But we're focused on what you just asked about, which is what does that mean for children across the country and especially right here in Arizona? What we know in Arizona is that 424,000 children would get an economic boost. They would get a check at their home that is either larger than the current child tax credit provides or it's new to them because, unfortunately, the current model leaves out a lot of low-income families. Hmm. Uh, And, you know, they they deserve to get that investment into them and their households, too. So it's very exciting that the child tax credit has this bipartisan support we had the chance to gather with some stakeholders and Senator Kelly's staff uh, just a couple of weeks ago just to talk about the child tax credit. Uh, and we appreciated that because it's it's an important tool. Look, child poverty, uh, nobody wants child poverty to exist in this great country that we live in. But it does. We saw the child tax credit during the pandemic drive down child poverty in major ways. Yeah. So this is not a mystery. We don't need to find, you know, the secret code. We know what works. The child tax credit does work. And bringing some economic relief to more families at a time when the grocery store bill is, is, you know, really hurting them. uh, It's absolutely the right thing to do. So you mentioned the pandemic there. And what's interesting about this is because of those pandemic measures, lots of families that had never before gotten this child tax credit were getting it, but like not even when they filed their taxes, like as a check in the mail every month. What's the difference between what was happening during the pandemic and what this new compromise would do? So this restores parts of the pandemic era child tax credit, meaning 
it covered a lot of families. We went back to this model then where we couldn't get bipartisan support that left out of the lowest income families, those with the greatest economic need. Uh, So, you know, we're most in favor of the pandemic model. Look, families deserve to be invested in just like we're investing in roads and businesses and other parts of our society. Uh, But this is an important move to make sure that we are capturing more families. And again, 424,000 kids just in Arizona Mm -hmm. will receive that check or it'll be a bigger check. And it's a time where rents are rising and, you know, it's just hard to make it. So providing a little bit of breathing room is going to make a big difference for a lot of families. All right, we'll leave it there for now. January Contreras, president and CEO of Children's Action Alliance, joining us to talk more about these things. January, thank you for coming in. I appreciate it very much. Thank you, Lauren. Great to be here. Pitchers and catchers report to spring training for the Diamondbacks tomorrow with their first Cactus League game scheduled for a week from Friday. The D-backs open the regular season on March 28th against the Rockies at Chase Field. That stadium was, of course, the site of the team's run to the World Series last year. And it's also been the source of some disagreement over the past several years between the Diamondbacks and Maricopa County, which owns the stadium. That includes a lawsuit being filed. The team has said the building needs repairs, like on the retractable roof. But the county has been reluctant to pay for those repairs and upgrades. There have also been rumors about the D-backs potentially looking for other places to call home. But will the team's on-field success last season translate into movement on the stadium front? Joining me to talk about that is Ted Ferris, former president and CEO of the Arizona Sports and Tourism Authority. And Ted, in general, how successful are teams when they try to leverage success on the field for fixing up their building or getting a new stadium or arena? Sure. That's interesting because success on the field can translate into a success going forward in terms of a number of fronts, uh, everything from people attending the games and buying merchandise and food and beverage and what have you, but also sponsorship revenues, naming rights, et cetera. So the more successful you are on the field and with your product, then over time it will help you grow all these ancillary revenues. However, when you're going to put together a pro forma financial statement and prospectus for either issuing bonds or going forward and getting loans or what have you to uh, fund stadium renovations or new construction. Folks who are either assisting with that or going to provide the capital, they're going to want to look at your financials looking backward. (laughs) So it's it's a mix of both. You need to have you know, you you got to live with whatever your performance has been, in this case, the Diamondbacks for first 25 years here. But you also you'll take a look going forward. And if you if you've got recent success and it can translate into more optimism on those uh, various revenue sources then it can be helpful. Yeah. Well, so the Diamondbacks have been pretty open about the fact that they want and what they say need renovations to Chase Field. And in the past, Maricopa County has not been super enthusiastic about paying for that. Given the fact that the D-backs are coming off a a trip to the World Series, does that change the conversation? Does that move the conversation at all, do you think? Well, I I think uh, the fact that they went to the World Series and had a fantastic year uh, can translate into more public support and political support for 
developing a, a private-public partnership. And so in that sense, it, 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 can be, it can be, at the margin, it can be helpful. There's also been discussion about the Diamondbacks potentially leaving Chase Field, either leaving Phoenix altogether, which seems less likely. The team has said they're not really looking to leave leave Phoenix or the Valley or potentially, you know, get a new stadium somewhere else. How realistic does that seem at the moment, both given the team's recent success, but also given sort of the overall financial situation across the Valley? Right. Well, and I'm well familiar with that. I mean, we had a site selection process for the uh, NFL stadium yeah. that uh, got interrupted by 9-11, had to start it all over again. And we had sites from around the county and, and we dealt with uh, the tribal communities. And we dealt with all the major municipalities. And I don't think that much has changed. It, it seems to me, having been in the state for a long time, <laughs> for Forty years now, and at various levels of that, that the era of the significant public subsidy for sports facilities is probably over in Arizona, and part of that is because everyone's already made a variety of commitments. I mean, municipalities have made commitments to help develop the Cactus League facilities in conjunction with the Sports and Tourism Authority, and we did a tremendous job, grew it from seven teams to 15 teams. And then you've got the Suns Arena, uh, the D-backs and the Cardinals that they were all built with a significant public contribution, but they were built at a time when the costs were significantly lower. The Suns Arena was built for about 90 million in 91. The D-backs completed in 98 for about 350 million. The Cardinals uh, completed in 06 for about 460 million. You look at baseball stadiums, football stadiums since then, the cheapest was probably 600 million. They go up to $5 billion for the one in LA. Mm. Um, a new stadium with a retractable roof, roof for the Diamondbacks would probably be upwards of $1.5 billion uh, from what I've read. You know, that the challenge is that to me, the way I see it is that the cost to do the major renovations, that budget, I think you can put a plan together for that. But it would require the team and its partners to come up with the lion's share of the 1.2 to 1.5 billion or whatever the number is, and or, or in order for that, you know, to make that happen at another location in, in uh, either in Phoenix or uh, somewhere else in the metro area. Well, so do you think then that if, let's say, the D-backs decided, okay, we're going to stay in Chase Field and just fix it mm-hmm. up and maybe make some some changes, large and small, would right. they still be on the hook, do you think, to pay for that? Do you think the county would be willing to maybe help in some respect, or would would the team still be in charge of paying for that just like they would be, by and large, for a new stadium? It would seem to me, and I had had no zero conversations with anyone with the county. Sure. Um, from what I've read and understand uh, and looking at other facilities that have a major renovation, the brewers are going to do one and the state's leaning into it up there fairly significantly for about 600 million. That was built about the same time as a Dubac stadium. I would guess that the cost to do the major and the minor, uh, everything that would be from structural to safety to the fan experience and what the team needs are, 
as well as the underlying infrastructure, the cooling, the air conditioning, the operation of the roof, et cetera. Yeah. Uh, you're probably looking at 400 million, 500 million. That's sort of an educated guess. And I think the team would probably have to lean into a significant portion of that. And beyond that, what the city could do and or the county, you know, that's that's part of what they're going to have to negotiate. Right. Well, so looking at Chase Field, if you are the Diamondbacks, do you prefer to renovate Chase Field, which, as you pointed out, is probably a lot less expensive than building a new stadium or maybe even taking money out of it. Is it better to just sort of start over somewhere else and build the stadium you want now? Well, that that's a call they have to make if they have that capacity and that funding through themselves and their partners. And I don't know what MLB, you know, Major League Baseball would contribute. I, I think that if you're looking at the one hand on a major renovation, it doesn't get you everything you want to get. I mean, the ideal would be you, you, you build a new one to whatever the new modern standard is. And right. and then you're 100 percent happy. And but you've got a cost of one point two, one point five billion, whatever. Or, you know, behind door B, you've got major renovation and upgrades and it's significantly improved. And you can do it at, at a, let's say, a one third of the cost. And you don't end up with 100 uh, percent satisfaction, but, you, you know, you get 85 or 90 percent of where you need to be. And you try to strike a deal where they've been, you know, at Chase for 25 years. You'd like to think that you put a package together, public private partnership that allows you to reach an agreement that, will continue on there for another 20, 25 years. That would be my guess. And that would be the one I think that would have the higher chance of, uh, of success. Interesting. All right. That is Ted Ferris, former president and CEO of the Arizona Sports and Tourism Authority. Ted, thank you so much for the conversation. I really appreciate it. I appreciate it as well, Mark. You take care. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. And I'm Mark Brody. Coming up, how February 13th came to be known as Galentine's Day, the non-romantic alternative to tomorrow's celebration of love. But first, the battle over who gets to use often dwindling rural groundwater in Arizona continues. And today we turn to La Paz County. There, outside of a tiny town called Brenda, Arizona, a Southern California company called Heliogen is asking the federal government to let it use groundwater from a stressed basin to create a clean energy fuel. It's called green hydrogen, and it's a complicated process involving an array of mirrors pointing toward a central tower that would use solar power to coax liquid hydrogen for carbon-free fuel from the water underground. But the people who live near this proposed project say it will drain their wells, and they were informed that this would be that this would not be your average solar energy project. The Arizona Republic's Brandon Loomis reported the story, and I spoke with him more about it. The proposal is to market the resulting hydrogen as a liquid fuel, which would be used in transportation, with the idea being that it could go for parts of the economy that are not easily decarbonized, I guess is the word they use. For instance, trucking, heavy Mm -hmm. trucks, 
And they mentioned the the port of Los Angeles, where you know obviously there's a lot of uh, fuel, uh, diesel that's burned trying to get things on and off of ships. And so that apparently would be one of the markets for this to use a clean energy to get that done. Interesting. Okay. So there are concerns, though, from some of the residents in La Paz County there nearby. It's a rural part of the state. There's a small town nearby called Brenda. Tell us a little bit about, first of all, why the company chose this particular place, this particular basin to to create this project. So first of all, Brenda is, it's almost not a town. There, there are a couple of businesses there. It's right off of I-10. So that's part of the reason that this, you know, makes sense potentially as an industrial site. You can get the stuff to market easily. It's also in close proximity or within 10 or 12 miles of the electric grid, you know, to to Mm -hmm. transport electricity if that's what you wanted to do with it instead of this. And that's really how this came to be, is that uh, about a decade ago, the federal government decided that we're going to create solar power and we need to survey the landscape and decide where it makes sense to do that, and then uh, create zones where companies can lease federal land to produce it. Mm -hmm. And they've created three solar zones in western and southwestern Arizona. This is one of them. It's about 3,300 acres where they decided that the impacts would not be terrible and that, as I said, it's close to getting it to market. Mm -hmm. So what happened then is a couple of years ago, the Federal Bureau of Land Management, having put out calls for someone to lease it, decided that this would be a good company to do it. They gave exclusive rights to this company named Heliogen to lease that land and follow through with the solar plan. And what surprised a lot of people who live in that area is that you know this was not a company that intended to just make solar power and send it to the grid. They wanted instead to use that power to make something of the water, the groundwater there. And you call this one of the state's most stressed rural groundwater basins. Tell us about the the sort of impact that this kind of project could have on that groundwater basin. You know, what, one of the interesting challenges in groundwater management in Arizona is that while cities like Phoenix and Tucson and their suburbs are covered by state law that requires that you have a, a long-term water supply before you go pumping new water, a lot of rural Arizona is not covered by that protection, and that would include this area that we're talking about. And over the course of the last year, as the council has been talking about where they need to focus their attention, this was one of three groundwater basins that was considered most challenged in the mm. rural parts of the state. And, you know, what it shows is that these areas where the state has monitoring wells for groundwater, you look at it over the last 20 years, there's a clear decline in the water table. Okay, so Brandon, tell us about what the residents in this area have said about why they even noticed this project. They they weren't necessarily informed about the plans ahead of time, right? Right. And, you know, I mean, I think they, they could have been clued in if they if they were worried about just solar power on its own, because back when, when this was designated a solar area, you know, the BLM was going through some public comment periods. But I think no one understood that this was going to end up being something other than solar power, that it was going to be solar that generated something from the water. So they didn't get that 
that that's what was going on. And when they learned it, they started to become upset that they hadn't been involved in that process. Mm. And the federal process is, you know, you don't start inviting public comment until you're to the point of doing an environmental study. And they're not even quite there yet. Mm. So there will be opportunities for public input on this water component of it. But the public hasn't been involved in that yet. But, uh, you know, some of the residents that I talked to have concerns because they've already had to deepen their wells, you know, out of their own pockets going and and paying for someone to drill their well deeper so that they don't lose water pressure. Hmm. Not entirely clear what's causing that, but uh, there is agricultural usage over there. Okay. So they're concerned that if this project goes forward, and as you outlined there, there are many steps left to that, there will be a big impact on their groundwater that is already facing a lot of challenges, right? What what has the company had to say about this? What did Heliogen have to say? Well, I was only able to communicate with them through email. They wanted to answer things in writing, but their assertion is that their project is going to use 40 times less water than agriculture uses in that groundwater basin. Hmm. What about the state hydrologist? You also spoke with him, and and there's an interesting sort of balance here. It sounds like this will not impact the groundwater supply as much as, say, agriculture might, but it, it could have an impact. Yes, that conversation yielded, you know, sort of two viewpoints. One is that this is not a humongous impact on its own. Uh, In other words, it is true that agriculture uses more water than this. And, um, you know, if you were looking at this project in isolation, you might not say that this is a problem for the aquifer. Mm -hmm. But then on the other hand, this is a basin that's already challenged, that already has a clear decline in the water table over the last 20 years. And, uh, you know, what that hydrologist told me is that if you want to reverse or or even just stop the current decline in a groundwater basin, it means you have to start reducing what you're pumping out of the groundwater and not pump more. Okay. We'll leave it there for now. That is Brandon Loomis, environmental reporter for the Arizona Republic, joining us to talk more about this story. Brandon, thanks for your reporting. Thanks for coming on. Thank you. ASU archaeologists are working with the federal government to try to find the remains of U.S. service members still unaccounted for from the Vietnam War. And the scientists and the Defense POW MIA Accountability Agency, or DPAA, are using a relatively new method to try to find remains in Cambodia. Christopher Nicholson is an associate research professor in ASU School of Human Evolution and Social Change. He's also the executive director of the Center for Digital Antiquity there. He joins me. And Christopher, how did it come to be that you're doing the work you're doing in Cambodia? Sure. A couple of years ago, about two years ago, we were approached by the DPAA and their innovations program to do some type of project related to digital archaeology and thinking about how information that they derive from past projects can maybe be used in a new and innovative way. And and thinking about how those hard copy documents that they produced from early projects can be turned into some type of digital product that can help them in their mission of trying to find missing service personnel. When you talk about the concept of digital archaeology, what exactly are you talking about? Yeah, this is becoming um, more and more, I guess, popular within archaeology. 
thinking about how the information that's derived from the archaeological record, and that can be anything from information derived thousands of years ago up to maybe 50 years ago, is born digital. That is, the, the information that we get in the field has uh, been produced by some type of computational machine. Uh, and then suddenly we have data and all sorts of other information that we can use to tell us something more about past human behavior. So now with digital archaeology, it's everything from the creation of digital information into the field to the actual curation of digital information that can be used later in time for some other type of project. Hmm. So how are you trying to use that to find remains of American service members uh, who, who are serving mostly, it sounds like, uh, who were involved in, in uh, aviation accidents during the Vietnam War? Yeah, so when we started the project, we weren't really sure what we were going to do. Um, you know, uh, GIS models are becoming more and more also popular in archaeology, GIS being geographic information science uh, models. That is the science of where things are. And so we came up with this idea, if we could use the location of existing DPAA sites where they've actually gone on the ground and looked for missing service personnel, if we could use that known information with some other known environmental data to try to maybe predict or come up with a probability map of where they might find these sites in the future. Uh, that way, when they're doing their planning activities, they can look at a map and say, based on these environmental parameters, we have a, there's a good probability that we will locate uh, missing service personnel material uh, down the line. So what kind of other factors are you looking at? We looked at um, environmental variables such as elevation, slope, axe aspect, uh, the curvature of the earth uh, or the landform, uh, the distance to rivers, and a vulnerability index that we created. And what is that? It's sort of looking at the susceptibility of different vegetation on the landscape to maybe decay. So we can use things like environmental variables like climate, uh, precipitation, and temperature to, to sort of look at the susceptibility of the land to, to different impacts. So does all of this mean then that you are trying to create, it sounds like, more favorable conditions for other people to go into the field, to sort of know where to go into the field to maybe look for remains, as opposed to going in the field and like looking at, you know, looking at whether there's particular vegetation at this spot versus that spot and saying, okay, this, this might be the place? Yeah, this is actually a really good planning tool because in a lot of cases, there's anecdotal information that the DPAA historians may have about a crash location. And so they'll begin to research some different information about it. This type of model can maybe help them to say, okay, well, yes, this is an area where there is high probability for, uh, for us to locate these types of remains. And so it's a good idea to continue down the line uh, with doing research to see if we can actually, if one of these missions will be successful. I'm curious, like at what like at what point will you be able to say this is working or this is not working? Like what's the what's the timeline in terms of maybe trying to actually locate remains? Yeah, so this is a brand new model for us. We just actually completed this in late 2023. So now what we want to do is actually ground truth the model. So as the DPAA continues with projects in Cambodia and across Southeast Asia, we'd like to be able to use this model as part of their planning process. And then once they do locate an area to sort of plug that location into our model and, and actually determine if it is of high prob probability or not, and then actually see if it's there or not. 
Yeah. I'm wondering if this kind of modeling might have applications beyond what you're using it for right now, even maybe beyond trying to locate, you know, remains of service members in other parts of the world. Oh, yeah. We think that this is actually applicable uh, to any part of the world, right? Coming up with different environmental parameters or, or other GIS and spatial information that might inform us about the land itself. Because, you know, typically when we do these types of models, they're typically called predictive models in archaeology, where you have some type of human behavior that you're trying to understand from a, a spatial perspective. And so usually arche- predictive models like this attempt to recreate that behavior. But in this case, we're trying to examine a random behavior that is airplane crashes, right? And so we have to think about other types of information that might be useful in the recovery of a missing service Mm. personnel, not necessarily why the aircraft got to be where it is at a particular point. So things maybe like soil acidity, or maybe things like the size of the aircraft or the amount of munitions on the aircraft can tell us something about the success rate of actually finding missing service personnel. So these models really can be used for all sorts of different things if we can find the data and information that might give us some insight as to why you find something in one place but not in another. Sure. So I want to go back to talking a little bit about what you reference as digital archaeology. And I'm curious, especially because I think for a lot of folks, when they think about archaeology, they're thinking about like ancient Greece, ancient Rome, things that are really, really old, not things that, you know, not times in life that a lot of people who are still alive actually lived through, like the Vietnam War. Yeah. So, you know, exactly. When a lot of people think of archaeology, they think of, you know, the distant past. And I think you've got some great examples of there. But now, Uh, There's even a newer segment of archaeology called historical archaeology that begins to look over maybe the past 100 or 200 years where we do have written records of information, but we also have a lot of remains left from those activities. And in in places like, you know, back east in places like Virginia, if you think of places like um, Monticello, where Thomas Jefferson's home is, right, they do all sorts of excavations there looking at the way he lived, um, the different slave quarters, uh, enslaved people where they lived and worked on a daily basis. And so even within that historic period, we can begin to learn a little bit more about the daily lives of people. All right. That is Christopher Nicholson, Associate Research Professor and Executive Director of the Center for Digital Antiquity in ASU School of Human Evolution and Social Change. Christopher, thank you so much for the conversation. I appreciate it. Thank you very much. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Lauren Gilger. And I'm Mark Brody. Lunar New Year began on Saturday and runs for about two weeks. And for my next guest, it's a time to celebrate with family and food. Bobby Kwan was born and raised in Phoenix. His parents came to the U.S. from China in the 1970s. He came by the studio earlier to talk about how his family celebrates Lunar New Year. Yeah, so I was thinking about that question Um and growing up, I've always thought as just things that we did, you know, not as traditions of our family, but figuring it, it was just things that we would that we just do all the time. And a lot of it is getting together with our family, uh, having a nice meal. The number eight is very lucky in our culture. And so, you know, there might be eight different kind of dishes, um, 
you know, being fish, beef, cold cuts or something, soup, uh, noodles, rice, you know, what have you, whatever they want to make. But and then having red envelopes given out to the people who are kids or unmarried, things like that. Um, But, yeah, it was super normal, you know, as a kid. And then growing up, you're like, these are traditions of our culture that, you know, we're celebrating that we're my parents still continue to, you know, instill into us and things like that. So we're giving it to our kids and yeah. passing those traditions on. So. so is it different food every year? It's not like the same dishes that you do year after year? No, yeah. It's it's whatever you guys, you know, want to come up with. So, you know, if you have it in your budget to have lobster, you know, you could definitely do a stir-fried huh. lobster or uh, steamed fish. And it doesn't matter you know, the type of fish and things like that. Whatever the chef or the moms wanna get together and make for, for that year. So yeah, it's uh it's it's nice that way because having the same thing all the time would you know, it, it get kind of boring and, and that shouldn't be the tradition, right? It should just be a little bit more relaxed and flexible. So do you partake in the cooking? Do you help in the kitchen? I help with some things. You know, I could definitely Make a egg drop soup. You know, I could stir fry some rice and noodles, things like that. But I leave the, you know, gutting the fish and cleaning it out, and then steaming it to to people who have done it for many more years than I have. To, uh, but I, I I like I I guess I've um, I washed them enough that I could probably uh, do it myself. It's just. Uh, they like to keep it in their hands. <laughs> it's their responsibility, I guess. So, Let me ask you about a dish called jung. Yeah. Uh, is this one that, that you tend to have with your family? Yeah, yeah. So every year uh, we, we have the sticky rice, and uh, the filling is really up in the air as, as to what you want to put in it. Um, there's a uh, very traditional would be uh, salted egg. Chinese sausage, and a piece of pork. Hmm. Um, Sometimes if you like peanuts, soft-boiled peanuts would be added to it. Uh, If you like beans, they can add beans to it. But they're uh, usually made in large batches and handed out and given as kind of, you know, offering to to eat and things like that. So, yeah, it's uh, we, we just made some. We made 500. This past week. 500? Yeah, for a festival that we just wow. did in uh, downtown Phoenix. Wow. Yeah. That's a lot. It's a lot. And it's a lot of work. But my mom and my aunt, um, after three days, uh, they cranked it out. It was just them two, I believe. So, oh, my gosh. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So do you have, like, big get-togethers? Like, is your family all together to celebrate Lunar New Year? Uh, yeah. So um, our family consists of... Eight grandkids, and then um, there's three siblings, my brother, my sister, and myself, and we're all married. And then, you know, a a few aunts and uncles are in town, and we'll get together on one side and then get together possibly again on another side. Okay. Um, You know, not all together, but uh, just multiple celebrations of gatherings, really. Um, we have family in California that would come out or we go out to them, things like that. But 
January, February are, is the time for us all to come together and, and have a meal and get caught up. So I'm curious how you see Lunar New Year and the celebrations that maybe you and your family do relative to being in a place like Phoenix, which is not China and doesn't have the world's biggest population of Chinese Americans. Mm-hmm. Like, do you see it as an opportunity to maybe teach people about Chinese culture and, you know, sort of teach people about what it's about? Or is it just kind of like a thing that you and your family do and some other people do? And, and that's kind of it. No. So I recently joined a uh an organization, nonprofit organization called Phoenix Chinese Week. And they go around and promote and educate the community on the Chinese culture. Mm-hmm. We did our annual festival uh, that's been going on for 30 years plus now. And um, there's a lot of display of how do you play mahjong, how uh, the dragon dance is like this, uh, the, the tea ceremony is like this. And so I want to instill all that stuff into my kids and my nieces and nephews. And then hopefully, you know, people that aren't even of Chinese descent can learn and, and maybe even embrace some of these things for themselves. So, And Lunar New Year is a, a sort of an opportunity to do that? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, well, I guess for us, it's, it's Lunar New Year and then there's also um, – other seasonal festivals that we um, celebrate because of the harvest and things like that. So it's the changing of the seasons. You harvest one thing and then you move on to the next and kind of just go about um, throughout the year. And and hopefully, I think through these traditions, they also want to um, bring part good luck. You know, if if, if they uh, keep doing the same thing and it's been lucky, then they kind of just keep doing it. So, yeah. Sure. All right. Bobby Kwan, thank you so much for coming in, and I hope you and your family have a a terrific celebration. Thank you. Good morning. It's the show on KJZZ 91.5. I'm Mark Brody. And I'm Lauren Gilger. And Mark, you know tomorrow is Valentine's Day, but do you know what today is? The day before Valentine's Day. That's right, yes, but it is also Galentine's Day. Of course, as a dedicated <laughs> Parks and Recreation fan, I should have remembered that. Exactly, and this year, Galentine's Day seems to be everywhere. I spoke more about the trend and where it began with Amanda Kerberg. She studies digital culture as a Ph.D. student at ASU's Walter Cronkite School of Journalism and Mass Communication. Yeah, it's one of those things that has just embedded itself in popular culture. And it actually goes back to the February 11th, 2010 episode of Parks and Rec, uh, where Leslie Nope, um, Amy Poehler's character, is introducing Valentine's Day. It's <laughs> this wonderful day where, you know, women celebrate women. They go out to brunch. They have a great time. What's Valentine's Day? Oh, it's only the best day of the year. Every February 13th, my lady friends and I leave our husbands and our boyfriends at home and we just come and kick it breakfast style. Ladies celebrating ladies. It's like Lilith Fair minus the angst. Plus frittatas. And what's so funny about that, too, is that February 11th, 2010 is also the date that the Anna Howard Shaw Day episode of 30 Rock aired, where uh, Tina Fey's character Liz Lemon 
is trying to get everyone to celebrate Anna Howard Shaw um, because I think it was her birthday. And so she's a famous um, suffragette Mm -hmm. uh, instead of Valentine's Day. So it was the two of them. You had (laughs) Tina Fey and Amy Poehler both sort of trying to undermine Valentine's Day that year. (laughs) I love that that happened simultaneously same day because you've got Tina Fey and Amy Poehler, right? They came up together in Mm the 1990s in the improv scene in Chicago. And then moved on to SNL together, you know, became the first all-women weekend update team. Like, they just brought this kind of culture of women's camaraderie and friendship and celebrating that, uh, both to their comedy content and I think to their career choices, too. And so I love (laughs) that it just coincided 2010 as the year when they were just like, nope, we are undercutting Valentine's Day this year. (laughs) So 2010, Valentine's Day has only existed since 2010. Yeah. But it's really like I had no idea this is where it was from. It's really jumped the shark since then. We have Valentine's Day almost as its own established holiday at this point. Absolutely. Yeah. No, I agree. I mean, it's so funny because I think last year I saw the articles popping up of like, okay, how to prepare for Valentine's Day. Mm-hmm. You know, what kind of uh, photo backdrop should you do? What kind <laughs> of hors d'oeuvres should you serve? What kind of little gifts should you put together? And this year, so much more too. I mean, just TikTok feed is 100% people prepping their Valentine's Day parties. <laughs> so yeah, it has become its own established thing for sure. That's interesting. So I mean, this was also like the year of the girl, right? Yes. Like the year of T. Swift, this pop culture year in which women were really celebrating. Yeah, absolutely. I think it it capitalizes on that so well. And even in terms of like thinking about holidays and commercialism, what's so fun about Valentine's Day, particularly following on the year of the girl, is that it's kind of a thrifting holiday. Like it's a holiday (laughs) thrifting another holiday. So it's I mean, its entire style is Valentine's Day colors, Valentine's Day (laughs) themes, Valentine's Day symbols. So you can just reuse all your Valentine's Day stuff. But this year in particular, you could wear what you wore to the Taylor Swift concert, Mm. wear what you wore with your girls to see Barbie, like reuse all (laughs) the Barbie court. Just if you have it, put it on the wall again, put it on the tables again. It's, It's perfect for Valentine's Day. What do you think this says about women right now, right? Like there is sort of this movement of women deciding like, I'm not going to date, I'm going to be single, and I'm going to be happy about that, which is pretty unheard of, I would say. Yeah. No, it's really interesting. There is so much more discourse about taking time for celibacy, just taking time to be Mm -hmm. what they call boy sober. That's the phrase. (laughs) Right? (laughs) Yeah. It's so funny. I love the whole thing about, you know, we're in this era now where pets are the new kids, um, plants are the new pets. And I think maybe <laughs> sourdough yeast is the new plants. But sure, like, yep. it's just, yeah, it's just a way. I mean, and I say that because I can't keep my sourdough yeast alive either. So <laughs> I'm on trend there. But I think it is a kind of celebration of, you know, women prioritizing things that aren't just purely romantic relationships and also culture learning to celebrate that, too. Yeah. Um, so I think that having things like holidays that center around friendship really help you enjoy that part of your life like you you know you don't have to feel left out of valentine's day mm-hmm. there are other ways to celebrate what's meaningful to you and and how you're finding meaning in new ways that don't just revolve around who you're dating or whether you're taking a specific path forward yeah okay it seems also like a whole lot less maybe commercial than valentine's day there yeah. are gifts here parties right but it's it's at least there's a lot less pressure this would seem I think so, for sure. I mean, especially when you talk about Valentine's Day, if you had to pick a holiday that was 
the most capital C commercial (laughs) (laughs) Um, in American culture. I think Valentine's Day, number one, right? Like what is supporting the card industry besides Valentine's Day? And so much of the discourse around Valentine's Day is what gifts are good enough and when they're arriving throughout the day and that kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I think so Valentine's Day undercutting that in such a great way by saying like the point here is – spending time with people you care about and showing them that you care about them and enjoying that kind of community and camaraderie and friendship. So I think, yes, you can, you know, put together a little gift pack with a tiny champagne bottle and some lip gloss. <laughs> but, but that's not it's not the priority is definitely not gifts. The priority is uh, presence. Presence, mm-hmm. not presents. Gotcha. Okay. <laughs> maybe Valentine's Day can learn a lesson from Valentine's Day then. Maybe. Maybe it can. <laughs> so I wonder this though, like is Valentine's Day anti-Valentine's Day? Like is this sort of an alternative like we don't want to do this, we're going to do this? It's funny. I, You know, I think there's certainly – it's a criticism of Valentine's mm-hmm. Day uh, and it's a pivot from Valentine's Day. But I don't <laughs> think – I. I would like to argue that it doesn't have necessarily a negative anti-Valentine's Day stance. (laughs) That it's maybe about taking, like, the really important parts of Valentine's Day and elevating them, which I think, you know, it's true of a lot of holidays. I mean, even, like, Thanksgiving, uh, if you look at, like, what Friendsgiving did, Friendsgiving is trying to elevate, hey, this is about spending time with people you care about. It's about having a good time, supporting each other, being thankful and grateful. And not necessarily we have to do it on this specific day in this specific way. And if grandma doesn't make her potatoes, that blah, 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 everybody's going to be really <laughs> unhappy. So I uh, I would say, yes, it has a critical eye toward Valentine's Day, but it's not necessarily anti-Valentine's Day. <laughs> okay, okay. Okay, Amanda, can yeah. men celebrate Valentine's Day? Absolutely. It's not exclusive. <laughs> no, it's not exclusive. I think if you can bring the right vibe and you're willing to take an Instagram selfie in front of the wall <laughs> of um, pink and red heart balloons, uh, absolutely get on board. Everyone's invited. All right, yeah. all right. That is Amanda Kerberg, a PhD student at ASU's Walter Cronkite School of Journalism and mass communication. She studies digital culture. Amanda, thank you as always. Happy Valentine's Day. Thank you so much. Happy (laughs) Valentine's Day to you too. An appropriate song for this segment. Thanks to our producers for that. I think you get extra points if you can get Cindy Lauper to come to your Galentine's Day Galentine's Day celebration, don't you think? Literally all of my dreams would come That'd be pretty there. amazing. Amazing, yes. All right. Well, happy Galentine's Day to all who celebrate. That'll do it for this Tuesday edition of the show. Thank you, as always, for listening. For Lauren Gilger, I'm Mark Brody. Have a great rest of your day. Hope to have you right back here tomorrow. That's it for this episode of the show's podcast. To find out more about the stories from today or other episodes, you can visit theshow.kjzz.org. And you can subscribe to KJZZ's The Show on your favorite podcasting site. I'm Lauren Gilger for Mark Brody. Thanks for listening today.